himself. Acts 17, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in the righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, which is the Lord Jesus. And so that is another good reason to study prophecy. Now, with that having said, let us look at some major passages before we, before we go into Revelation, which will really not be till next week. Um, uh, then, uh, Revelation doesn't stand on its own. So there are uh, the, the whole Bible is connected together. And if you read the Bible, you will see that especially the book of Daniel and also Zechariah and major parts of Isaiah and the book of Revelation and the Thessalonian epistles and Matthew 24 are much interconnected with one another. So we first want to look at Daniel chapter 9. And this passage, which is verse 24 to 27, it's only four long verses, uh, is pivotal to our understanding of God's prophetic program. Now this chapter, of course, is in the middle of Daniel's story. Daniel here, at the beginning of this chapter, he finds out about uh, Jeremiah's prophecy that the Babylonian captivity would be 70 years. And these years were drawing near. And that God had promised that the people would return back to Israel, to Jerusalem specifically. And then Daniel starts to pray and to confess the sins of Israel. And he, therefore, he in this chapter, he takes on the, uh, as being the representative before God for the nation. And then the angel Gabriel appears to him in Daniel 9, verse 21. And he gives him this... Uh, Prophecy in verse 24 of Daniel 9. Seven we- 70 weeks. And we shall see that this is actually, it literally says 70 sevens. And those are periods of seven, that is seven years. In other words, 70 times seven is 490 years. Are determined for your people and for your holy city. So that's Jerusalem. So this is very important to note that these 70 weeks are primarily about Israel. Daniel, it says to Daniel, for your people, that is Daniel's people, which is Israel, and for your holy city, which is is Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this is the purpose of those 70 70 weeks. This God's prophetic program is to complete all these things mentioned in verse 24. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem... And you will see that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, when the, when the city, when the command was given by King Chorus uh, to rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, that's the Lord Jesus, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, so that's after the 62 and the 7 weeks, so 69 weeks altogether, Messiah shall be cut off. So this is a prophecy about the death of the Lord Jesus. He shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now this happened in A.D. 31-32. Now you might say, the command that was given in verse 25 to rebuild the city, that's when God's time clock started, That was in 445 B.C. Now this period, from when it started to the time when the Lord Jesus died, 69 times 7 years is 483 years. Now in the Bible, a year is 360 days because Israel had a lunar calendar. So if you multiply 483 by 360 and then you divide that number by 365.25, you get, you come to the year 3132. The first man that put this together, really, or I shouldn't say the first one, but one man that put this together clearly was a man by the name of Sir Robert Anderson. Many people quote him. So this is where it refers to. So this was fulfilled, 
these 69 weeks, from that period in Nehemiah 2, verse 1, till the death of the Lord Jesus, in, in uh, Daniel 9, verse 26. And then it says in verse 26, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This happened in AD 70. Titus, the Roman general, he destroyed, or the people, I should say, the Romans, destroyed the city and the temple. And then it says, the end of it, or the end will come like a flood, until the end of the war, or till the end, war, desolations are determined. And so, that last phrase of verse 26 describes this whole period from the time that Jerusalem was destroyed till the end of this age. So, in God's prophetic program, this whole period of what we call the church age has been marked by war, and that is like a... a, a and break between the 69 weeks and the 70th week, as you can see on the chart. And then verse 27. Then he, that is that prince of those people, in verse 26, so that is the coming Antichrist, the beast out of the sea, the head of the revived Roman Empire, shall confirm a covenant with many, or with the many, that is the majority of Israel, for one week. So that is that 70th week. That is, that seven years that is still to come. But in the middle of the week, so after three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So halfway that seven-year period, after three and a half years, the Antichrist will have himself worshipped as God. You see that also in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, the Lord Jesus refers to that in Matthew 24. And then, he said, then it says specifically, Let him that readeth, in Daniel the prophet, let him that readeth understand this. So the Lord Jesus referred to this prophecy. This is a very pivotal prophecy in relation to the God's timetable. So this is most likely a passage that we will refer to a lot when we go through the book of Revelation. Now we'll read another passage, and that will be in John 14. John chapter 14. Now, I, I don't have... Like, the material is overwhelming, because I studied this for quite a while, and I gathered a lot of material and had to reduce it back, and uh, all my notes are on, uh, on, online, so if I don't say all my notes, you can just uh, read the rest for yourself when you get home, whenever you like. So John chapter 14, verse 1 to, th- to 3, and the Lord Jesus says there to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, there are other passages Especially 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 to 18. If you lay that beside this passage, it's almost identical. Because it talks about the same event. That is, the rapture of the church. And so tonight, I'm going to make a case for the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view of prophecy. Now you're asking, what does all those big words mean? Well, we're going to look at that. Now, another portion, and that is very important, too, in our understanding, and that is in Revelation 19. Revelation 19. And we'll read a few verses in this chapter and also in chapter 20. Starting in 19, verse 6. Revelation 19, verse 6. 
And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife, that is the church, has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So this is talking about the bride of Christ, the church. That is, all God's people from Pentecost Day till the rapture of the church. They belong to the church, sometimes called the body of Christ, from Jews and Gentiles. In this age, in this dispensation, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All those who believe on him from both camps belong together. Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear about this. And then go to... Um, Verse 10 at the end, the last phrase of verse 10 says, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now this can mean two things. For the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, or is really what prophecy is all about. The central person of prophecy is the Lord Jesus. But it could also mean, and that's perhaps more likely what it means, for the testimony given by Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's really what the Lord Jesus says about it, what is the spirit of prophecy. But I kind of like both of them, because it's certainly true that prophecy is all about the Lord Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of John. So, then verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on him, that is the Lord Jesus, was called faithful and true, and in the righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now notice verse 14. It talks there about the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. That's the same people as mentioned in verse 8, and there it's called the Bride of Christ. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on the white horses. So the Lord Jesus coming out of heaven, and his bride, of course it's the church, but there's different pictures mentioned of the bride. He, they are called the bride, and here they're called armies. And then and in chapter 5 and 4, they're called the 24 elders. So there's different, different uh, uh, um, pictures, or how do you call that? Um, uh, yeah, different pictures used for the church. So here they are armies. They're clothed in finally, and they come with him. And we saw that in Jude, in the, in the epistle of Jude, that even Enoch prophesied about uh, him coming with all his saints. That's really what this is about. This is his second coming on the clouds of heaven, and his bride is already with him. It's he, the bride is already in heaven with him, and they come back with him on the white horses. Now, out of his mouth, verse 15, goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Um, <clears throat> he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. 
Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Then in verse 9 at the end, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne. Verse tw uh, chapter 21, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And so on. Now when you read this, when you read these events, you have to notice the words, and I saw, or I heard. And so when you read it chronologically, then the only view that makes any sense is the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view. Now I'm going to explain what I mean. So maybe you can put up the uh, slide number two. Okay, so premillennialism, pre means before, is that view which holds that Jesus will return to the earth to establish a literal kingdom over which he will rule supreme for a period of a literal 1,000 years. The pre designates the belief that Jesus will return before the 1,000 year kingdom begins. This was the view almost unanimously held by the church during the first three centuries. Like I, in the last two months, I have read extensively a lot of writings from those first three uh, centuries. M uh, men like Tertullian, um, uh, Clement, and, and many others, many others, Irenaeus, and so on. And they wrote about these things. And they said clearly that the Lord Jesus would come back literally before, the, before he would reign on the earth for a thousand years. Literally. So this is what you call premillennial view. Now if you read the, what we just read in the Revelation 19 and 20, it reads like that's the way it's going to be. So generally, what did the, Lord, what did the devil say to Eve? Has God said? The first recorded words of the, of the devil in the Bible are doubting God's word. Has God said? Did he really mean this? So when we read the scriptures, we are, we are to view the scriptures from a literal historical standpoint. That doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have symbolism. Of course it does. It does have symbolism. The book of Revelation is full of symbolism. When it talks there about the dragon, for example, in uh, chapter 12, then we know it's not a literal dragon, but it is a picture of the devil. When it talks there about the beast sitting on the throne and ruling the world, that's not a literal beast, but it's a man that is compared to a beast. Okay? 
So the scriptures make it very clear when there is symbolism being used. But symbolism doesn't take away from the literal understanding of the scriptures. Just like, for example, tonight I came on this platform. As we say, he took the platform tonight. Well, it doesn't mean that I carried it outside. I couldn't even do this. But we know what you mean. We know what we mean by that kind of, of talk. We use symbolism. We use figures of speech in, in common language. And so the Bible does that too. Now, <clears throat> um, and so the Lord Jesus will come back before a literal 1,000 years. In chapter 20, we read that, that uh, phrase, 1,000 years. We read that six times, 1,000 years. Now, of course, there are other views, and the main one, the main arrival to the premillennial view is the amillennial view, or a means not, or actually amillennialists don't like calling themselves amillennialists. They call themselves realized millennialists. And so maybe you can put up the next slide, and that gives you a view of amillennialism, and I will say a few things about how that came about. So we will go back a little bit into church history. Amillennialism is that view which holds that Jesus is presently ruling in heaven, where proponents claim he is seated on the throne of David. According to the amillennial view, Jesus will at no time rule on the earth. The 1,000 years recorded by John in Revelation 20 is suggested to be symbolic of Jesus' present heavenly reign that extends from the resurrection of Christ into the eternal age. Thus, the term amillennial, no millennium, holds that the 1,000 years is understood to be symbolic of a long period of time rather than a literal duration of a 1,000 years. That is what the amillennials believed. Now, Augustine, who was the most dominant theologian after the apostles until Martin Luther, was the main proponent of amillennialism. But there were always exceptions, even during the Middle Ages. Men like Peter Waldo, and the Waldensians uh, in around 1200. William Tyndale believed in the premillennial reign of Christ, premillennial coming of Christ. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, and so on. And there were many others. But, of course, at that time, the Catholic Church um, was the dominant church, at least in Western Europe, and the Orthodox churches in the East. So, um, so how did amillennialism come about. Why was that view? Because the church within, no, within one generation switched over from premillennialism to amillennialism. How was that possible? Now, the first reason why that became a reality was a failure to distinguish between Israel and the church, so-called replacement theology or supersessionism. That is, this belief, and that goes back before Augustine, this goes back as far as um, about 160, at least until towards the end of the second century, so around 200, that view was fairly dominant already. Replacement theology. That is, they believed, those people that believe in replacement theology believe there is no future for Israel as a people. They believe that all the blessings of the Old Testament that were given to Israel are transferred to the church. There is only one people from Adam till the last day, and that is, includes the church, that is the church from Adam till the last day. This is the stuff that I was brought up with at first. Okay? The Reformed churches, they were all amillennialists, very strong. So, very easy. They have only one one uh, expectation about the future, they don't talk much about it, that is, Jesus will come back and he will separate the goats from the sheep, Matthew 25, and the unbelievers, the goats, they go to hell and the believers go to heaven and then eternity starts and that's the end of it. Very simple. So how did that come about? Well, if you, 
they started to teach that there is no future for Israel. Now, see, as the, as the, the gospel was being proclaimed, you see that already in the book of Acts, there was a lot of enmity of the Jews towards the Christians. And as time went by, that only became worse. And then around A.D. 90, the Jews had a council where uh, it was called the Council of Jamnia in 90. They placed a curse on any Jews that uh, believed anything different than uh, common Judaism. So the Christians were cursed, according to them. Also, when AD 70 happened, when the Jews destroyed Jerusalem, the Christians were not part of that. And so the, the Jews, they looked on Jewish Christians as being traitors of the nation. So the antagonism widened. It got worse. And then, of course, as time went by, many people in the church, they saw that the Jews were not going to convert to Christ. And so antagonism grew. And then another thing was, more converts were coming from the, from the Gentiles than from the Jews. So the church, as time went by, became more Gentile than Jewish. Another thing that really helped uh, to, uh, or maybe I should not, it's not really help, but that really encouraged um, amillennialism was, and this is big, the, many teachers, church fathers, they started to move away from the historical, literal interpretation of Scripture. And they started allegorizing the Scriptures. Now, what is allegorizing the Scriptures? Actually, I have a quote here. Might as well read it instead of trying to explain it. Allegorizing is searching for a hidden or secret meaning underlying but remote from and unrelated in reality to the more obvious meaning of a text. In other words, the literal reading is a sort of code which needs to be deciphered to determine the more significant and hidden meaning. In this approach, the literal is superficial, the allegorical is the true meaning. So, for example... I'll give you an example. You know, the, the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, they would explain that uh, the, two point, the two pennies that the that this Good Samaritan left in the inn is the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, where in the world do you, can you, I mean, that's just playing, playing games with Scripture. Because if you can start allegorizing and not take the, the Scripture as it is written, then who says what it means? Now, God says what it means. God says what it means. But this, this allegorizing of Scripture and, and spiritualizing everything away was helping, the, the, was actually encouraging to move away from, from premillennial, from a literal view of the coming kingdom. And so that was a big... Um, a big problem for the church then. Another thing that really helped uh, or that really encouraged amillennialism was the end of persecution. You see, you had Constantine the Great in the fourth, early 4th century and he, um, he stopped the persecution against Christians. And then later on, they made Christianity the state religion. So many Christian teachers started saying, well, wait a minute, maybe we saw it all wrong in the first place. Because we thought we were going to be persecuted until the day that the Lord Jesus is coming back. And then his kingdom is coming. Because this world was pretty hostile to us. But maybe we got it all wrong. This is the kingdom. It's now a Christian empire. This is it, man. And you had a man, Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. He wrote a book, The City of God. And his teachings revolutionized the church. And the whole church, they just changed their mind within no time. The whole church had turned, pre, uh, had turned amillennial. And so, when Constantine became emperor, they started to turn away to the, against the Jews even more. It became, the church became very anti-Semitic. And so, the, the expectation of the, of the Christians at that time for the Lord's coming completely burned out, almost completely. 
and they started being focused on this world. And eventually the church became very powerful in the Middle Ages. And the church started to reign the empire instead of the other way around, or instead of being subject to the, to the authorities. And so um, that's how that story came about. And so these events became disastrous for the spiritual condition of the professing church and resulted in mixing pagan ideas and militarism within the church within the, and losing the true understanding of the calling of the church. Because the church is a called out group from among the nations to be separate from the world, to be a testimony to the heavenly Christ. And so we know how the story went in the, in the Middle Ages and it became terrible. The, ter- the idolatry was terrible. And then in 431... So this was about a good hundred years later. The Council of Ephesus declared the belief in a literal millennial reign of Christ on earth to be superstitious. And that became the belief of, amillennialism became the belief of the professing church for at least a thousand years. Then the Reformation came and the reformers such as Luther and Calvin, they went back to a literal historical interpretation of scripture. But you know what? They never really dealt with the whole question of uh, prophecy. Uh, for example, Calvin wrote a book about every book in the Bible except Revelation and the Song of Solomon. And so they just didn't deal with that. And so they remained, those churches, those mainline Protestant churches, remained amillennial in their view of prophecy. And, um, but even today, you know what? Many Roman Catholics, Orthodox Most mainline Protestants, such as Reformed, Anglicans, Methodists, Lutherans, and the minority of evangelicals, they believe in amillennialism. And so, that's that's the story of how that happened. Then you have another view, maybe you can put up another slide. I know I'm overloading you, and I was a little afraid of that, but that's why you have the notes, you can all look it up later. Post-millennialism, now what is that now? Post means after. Now, this view came about in the 1600s, 15th, 1600s. It is that view which holds that Jesus is presently ruling in the church, especially in the hearts of believers, who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will Christianize the world and usher in a golden age of peace, prosperity, and health. The 1,000 years of Revelation 20 is understood symbolically to represent this utopian age, which will last a long period of time, after which Jesus will return to initiate the eternal age. Post, then, means that Jesus will return after the golden age is established by the church. This view was proposed after the Reformation and has many similarities with amillennialism. Postmillennialism was a dominant view during the great missionary movement of the 19th century. But its optimism lost popularity among Christians after two devastating world wars in the 20th century. So that's a minority view today. Because if you believe that the world is going to get better and Christianized, it doesn't look very good right now, does it? That's not what the Bible teaches. So there again, there again this view, these people, they symbolize, they allegorize a lot of scripture. And then there is another view. And that is called preterism. That's the next slide. And we can be sure about that one. It is that view which holds that the biblical prophecies concerning the end times have already been fulfilled in the past. It teaches that all the end time prophecies of the New Testament were fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. It considers that Jesus' return to earth was a spiritual return. So here again, spiritualizing, not a physical one. Partial preterists do believe in the return of Christ to earth and a future resurrection and judgment, but they do not teach a millennial kingdom or that Israel as a nation has a place in God's future plan. Now, I think that preterists, that is really heretical because that denies even the resurrection. Now, this is, this is a very minority view, but it is, it is held by, for example, a man called Hank Hanegraaf with uh, the Bible Answer Man. You you can listen, some people listen to him. That's the view he holds. That's very serious. Now, um, so the the church before, before Constantine, before Augustine, 
The first three centuries, they were premillennial. Now put up maybe uh, slide number six. Here are some quotes from some of the old church fathers, uh, leaders among the church in the first few centuries. So this is Hippolytus. Uh, he lived in the second, uh, actually the second and third century. He wrote about the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 and said the first 69 were followed by Christ's first coming and the 70th will begin after a time gap just before Christ's second coming. So they were very clear about that. Now, you might say, well, how come we never heard about the pre-tribulational rapture during the Middle Ages? Because people didn't believe in a literal millennium and a literal tribulation. So why would you believe in a rapture? So among those who believe in premillennialism, that is that Christ comes back, his return to earth on the clouds of heaven and then establishes his kingdom, there are different views among when the rapture will take place. The main two views are pre-tribulational rapture. Maybe you can put up slide number seven. The pre-tribulational rapture, that's what I believe, the church will be raptured before the great tribulation so that it will not experience God's coming judgments on the world. Okay? That is a very dominant view. Uh, most evangelicals today believe that. Then there is a post-tribulational rapture. That is the belief that the church will go through the tribulation and will be delivered by Christ shortly before or simultaneously at his return to earth. So they believe there is only one event. So the church will have to go through the tribulation. That's what they believe. And then there is another minority view, and that is that the rapture will take place halfway, somewhere halfway during the tribulation. Now, again, most post-tribulationists, they, again, they don't see the difference between Israel and the church. They spiritualize big parts of the scriptures. So I'm going to make a statement here that as far as I can see it from history, what I've studied, the only view that takes the Bible literal, literal historical, according to his literal historical view, is the one that coincides with pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view. Now, how do you know, you might say, that the coming of Christ, the future prophecies, are going to be fulfilled literally? Well, let's just look at the first coming of Christ. There were prophecies given then as well. He was to be born in Bethlehem. He was to be born of a virgin. He was to be the son of David. How were those, how were those fulfilled? Symbolically? Literally. Is that not an indication that the prophecies that still have to be fulfilled will be fulfilled literally as well? Very strong indication. There's no reason to think otherwise. Now, um, there were three things that were very clear from the early church fathers. The first one was that the Lit, that Christ would come back literally and that there would be a literal 1,000-year kingdom. And the third one was the imminency, the imminent return of Christ. Now, what does that mean, imminency? Imminency means that he can come at any time. The, he, their writings were full of that. And the New Testament is full of this. The expectation of the Lord Jesus can be at any time. There are many verses in Scripture that teach that. But if we have to go through the tribulation, what are we to expect then? We are to expect judgment and wrath. Not anything that would make me long for the last days. But the Bible teaches that Christians expect the Lord's coming, the Lord longingly. It's something that should rejoice us, that comforts our hearts. We, you can read that in 1 Thessalonians 4. Comfort one another with these words. So how can the expectation of tribulation, if the Lord Jesus doesn't come before, how can that be anything that we long for? That's a terrible time. Now people say, yeah, but you, you guys, don't you realize that the church will have to go through tribulation, much tribulation? 
Yes, but there is a difference between tribulation and persecution caused by man because of our testimony and tribulation that is caused by God's judgment. That's the difference. The, the persecution and tribulation that the New Testament talks about a lot is caused by those who hate Christ in the gospel. That's very, that's very clear, and the early Christians experienced that very much as well as most of the church still does today. But that's a different story than tribulation caused by God in the judgments of those seven, year, uh, seven years during the Great Tribulation. That's the difference. God, we, we, we are saved. We shall be saved from wrath. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says that um, maybe first in chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, people might say, well, yeah, that, that's the great white throne judgment. But that's not the context in this epistle at all. The coming wrath here is the great tribulation wrath. And then First Thessalonians 5, verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is what happened in the church age, in the, in, in the Middle Ages, as the church no longer was really expecting the Lord's coming. They neither expected really the resurrection of the dead. That really became, they still believed that, but it became a background teaching. And it was all about the immortality of the soul. The big question was, where do I go after I die? Now, that's an important question. But the hope of the Christian is not to die and go to heaven. That is true. But the hope, as mentioned in the New Testament, is the coming of the Lord Jesus to take us, to be with him, and to experience a physical resurrection and get a glorified body. That's the expectation that the New Testament talks about. But the amillennialist doesn't, doesn't talk about that. So amillennialism is not a result of more diligent study of Scripture, but rather a neglect of the prophecies. That's what it is. Now, I wanna, I, I, my time is pretty well up, so I, uh, I want to put up one more quote, and that is uh, number nine. And that goes back a long time. That goes back to the 4th century. And this is from Ephraim of Nisibis, or someone associated with him. It doesn't really matter who wrote it, but it was written around that time. All the saints and elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation, which is to come, and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion... So that's the tribulation, which overwhelms the world because of our sins. That's a very early uh, pre-tribulational statement from the 4th century. And there were many others. See, many people say, yeah, all that, that, that pre-tribulationism that was started by Jay and Derby. No, 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 no. That's not true. And then I have a whole list here, and I'm not going to go through that, but there were many people uh, throughout the ages that uh, believed in a uh, pre-tribulational rapture. Now, you have to keep in mind, too, that anybody that disagreed with the Catholic Church, their writings were destroyed, notably the Albigenses and the Waldensians and so on. Their writings were destroyed by the Catholic Church. Um, so now I want to make a few arguments, just in closing, for in support of premillennialism and the pre-tribulational rapture view, just to conclude. The first... Uh, the first argument is the historical, literal interpretation of Scripture. If you follow that, then that the pre-tribulational view that the Lord Jesus comes back before the Great Tribulation and then he returns after the Great Tribulation for Israel, that is the outcome of the historical, literal interpretation of Scripture. The second point is, and that is actually in, um, that's slide 12. That's, maybe you can show slide 12. The second is, this view is in keeping with the promises to Israel in the Old Testament. It just doesn't, it's not right 
to uh, say that all the promises given to Israel are now transferred to the church. I'll read you one verse from Jeremiah 31, which is very emphatic. This is what it says, and it's actually repeated, and so I, I read the second one of them, but it's repeated twice. Verse 37 of Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord, so this is a, an authoritative statement from God himself, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. That's a pretty strong statement. And that's similar things are repeated in Romans 11. And so, the promises given to Israel, they are for Israel. See, there's very, they, the, those amillennialists are very uh, um, inconsistent because all the curses, they, they leave them for the Jews. They don't want to transfer those to the Christians. They leave all the curses for the church, but all the blessings for the... They believe all the curses for Israel, but all the blessings go to the church. That's inconsistent. So the second point then is the promises to Israel are literal, and they are in, in, in keeping with, with uh, this view that I'm proposing here. The progressive revelation of the New Testament does not cancel God's promises to Israel and transfer them to the church. Number three, the 70 weeks of Daniel 9 are pivotal to a proper understanding of prophecy. That is denied by amillennialism and all the other views too. Number four, the expectation of the rapture before the great tribulation is the only view that does justice to the imminency of Christ's return. The New Testament has an abundance of verses telling us to be ready at all times for his return. If the, if the rapture and the second and the return are the same thing. Why? Then we are to wait for signs and wonders and so on, and, uh, and, and, and wrath and judgment. And then number five, the church is not mentioned as being on earth in Revelation 6 to 18. And we'll, we'll look at that when we get into Revelation. Next point, if the rapture were to happen after the great tribulations, Christians would have to expect God's judgments of the great, great Tribulation first, something that we would have to dread. There's nothing to long for, I said that already. And so, then we have a little list, and I'll leave that with you. And that shows you a few differences between the rapture and the return. The Christ will come in the air for his people at the rapture, and then with his people seven years later. And there's many other ones. And I really like the last one, and I want to close with that. Years ago, when I um, found out what the morning star means, Christ as the morning star, I was very excited about it. At that time, I had my bedroom on the east side. And the next morning, for some reason, I woke up at around 4.30, 5 o'clock, and the first thing I thought about was the morning star. And I opened my curtains, and there it was. The morning star. It was a very dark night. Very dark. So the morning star is planet Venus. It, it appears a few times, a few uh, uh, short periods of the year. This time, this year, it's in January and February, and sometimes it disappears behind the sun. But it appears at the end of the night, before the day comes, before the day, at the darkest of the night, the planet Venus. And so the New Testament ends with Christ's coming as the morning star. That's how we await him. Then if you go to the Malachi 4, which is the last chapter of the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus and his coming there is mentioned as the son of righteousness. And that is his coming for Israel. When everybody wakes up, when everybody sees it, Jesus comes back. On the clouds of heaven, when every eye shall see him, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, and he will be there coming as the Son of Righteousness with healing in his wings, which refers to his coming kingdom. That's how the Jews expect him. But we expect him as the morning star. You know what? Maybe you say, well, you know what? I have one more slide. 
I can't remember now which picture it was, but it's the picture. You say, well, you know what? I can't figure it out. I think I'm a, I'm a long-trip pan-millennialist. Okay? It's taking a long time, and I think it will all pan out in the end. Okay? If that's what you think, well, that, uh, that could be, but the devil wants to fight this. The devil is opposing this. And so we should study the Scriptures. And, uh, and I believe if we take the Scriptures literally, this is where the conclusion that we come to. Let us pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus has promised to come back. We thank you that he is a living Savior forevermore. Today he is in heaven, and he is glorified and seated at your right hand. But Father, we, we know that now we see not yet all things put under him. But Father, we know that the day is coming when he shall come back, and we shall be with him, and he shall, uh, we shall follow him, and he shall come as conqueror, and he will establish his kingdom. What a day that shall be. Father, we have no idea what a wonderful time that shall be for us when we shall have no more pain, no death, no darkness. And Father, what a tremendous expectation we have. Our Father, we pray tonight that as we find that this is not an easy subject, we pray that our hearts may be drawn towards the Lord Jesus while perhaps not understanding everything, that our hearts may be longing for the Lord Jesus, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And Father, we pray too as we study the book of Revelation that you may guide and direct us and that we may um, uh, recognize the Lord Jesus on every page of Scripture. And Father, we pray for this. Pray for each one here with us. We pray that we may be encouraged and we ask you these things and we give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.